This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 267. We're recording on Thursday, June 28th. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Welcome back. Thanks so much. Uh, I hear you had a good episode. I, I've saved uh, to listen to you and Josh for next week when things are slow around the office, and I've got a bunch of spreadsheet mm-hmm. work to do, and I, I can put play your dulcet tones in yes, the background. Yes, you know, we had, a, we had a nice time. We had a little book rageous mini reunion, and then I had this grand plan to like put him on the hot seat and ask him a bunch of questions. And he looked at the agenda ahead of time and had answers prepared. Dang that, Christy. Like a person who knows how to do a media appearance. For those of you who, Uh, did you talk about Book Rages on the show? Because I was going to... We talked about it just a little bit. Uh, I listened to it. I was a guest at one point a million thousand Mm -hmm. years ago. Oh my gosh, so many years ago. But I think the episodes are still live, right? I mean, you can go, can you go listen if you want? Oh, Jeff. Don't send people back no, to things delightful. we made seven it, years it, ago. Well, I, it's not. I'm not. I'm only on there once. It's not my fault. <laughs> uh, hopefully, it's delightful. People are still listening to them. Yes, so. it's it. They are timeless in this regards. Like you're talking about books you like, so it's not. It's not a mm-hmm. new show. Um, yeah, most of the episodes were, or many were themed around um, particular books around particular topics. Mm-hmm. So we would always start the the ca- like tagline was we're serious about books but not exactly serious. Yes. And we always talked about what we're reading now and then talked about, you know, poetry or books about X mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Um and then near the end we had it was Jen who now, you know, yep. works for Book Riot House for a few years. It was me, Jen and Josh for several years and then we added Paul Montgomery and Preeti Chipper. Mm-hmm. Um in the last year or so to come on with us too and had more diverse topics and we were talking about comics more and yeah, it was, we did some things, but I'm, I'm terrified to like think about anything I made that long ago. Well, so. listen, it, this show didn't start that long after Book Rages. So like, it's not like a completely different, it's not like, you know, it's, it's, it's like the Jurassic era when the earth was still cooling. I mean, it was right. I think we start, yeah, I think we started Book Rages in 2009. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. There are fifty-ish episodes. Is that right? I don't know. Fifty. There's more than. There's more than that. Maybe oh. in the sixties to eighties. Okay. Wow. So not all of them are available on right. iTunes for reasons that we just never dug into because we discovered that near kind of near the mm-hmm. end of the run. But it was the. It is the fun project I have worked on, or that I did work on the longest mm-hmm. in my life. Like you know, obviously books are my job too, but, um, I think it was for Jen as well in terms of like a hobby thing or maybe for all of us, Mm. um, the thing that we did the longest, but cool to spend, you know, an hour every couple of weeks talking with basically your best friends about books. Yeah. So if you, if you like Josh's, um, appearance here, well, and you listen to the social, you like Rebecca, Jen, who you've probably heard on this show and others, I'm just saying you can get back catalog, you know, deep cuts, (laughs) like the early stuff, you know, like, like Nirvana's uh, Bleach album. Like, okay. So you can't, you came for smells like team spirit, but if you're into it, you can go back. There's one, there's some early stuff that, that you can We were just little baby internet yeah, people right. back then. And the, that podcast is not uh, family friendly. Oh, so don't listen yes. to that one with your kids in the car. Good call. 
I think that show, if I remember my guest appearance, which I don't remember it very well, I think I may have introduced you to I Married You for Happiness by Lily Tuck. I think that was my pick for that show. Oh, um, you know, that, um, you and Josh both yeah, loved that book. Right. And I can't remember, maybe it was a co-recommendation. Yeah, or he, I don't know who or got to he, me first. he introduced you to it and I, I seconded it mm-hmm. or something. But I do remember talking about I Married You for Happiness uh, in that episode, yes. especially by... Oh, such a good one. The great Lily Tuck. All right, let's do a sponsor and get into our midsummer. Is it midsummer? I don't ever know. Uh, it's just summer. Uh, it's summer. Summertime uh, Book Riot show. This episode of the Book Riot podcast is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, which is the best way to discover new interests and pick up hob- new hobbies with fascinating insights from leading professors and experts. With Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to thousands of lectures in virtually any category, like history, science, literature, cooking, photography, and more. Like categories, like subjects. You know what subjects are. I don't have to explain that to you. Or you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app, which is fantastic. I have it on my phone right now. I've been using it. You'll love their course, Life Lessons, from great books. So if you want to use classic books as you know a guide to living, they've got a course. 30 minutes episodes are so very easy to listen to, very approachable. Um, you know, it's like if you don't quite if you if you are interested in like maybe dipping your toe into self help, but you don't want to wander too far uh, from from novels and philosophy and, and the great works of literature. This is a way of doing that. The Great Courses Plus is giving a special limited time offer to our listeners. If you go to the great if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash book riot, you'll get a full month to enjoy all of the great courses plus lectures for free. If you've got a road trip coming on, you got a vacation, maybe you're doing yard work, maybe just laying around the house. I've said this before about audiobooks. I feel even more this uh, I, about this about Great Courses Plus. I, I've done something of late where I might uh, play a video game while listening to an audiobook. It's sort of a, oh. you know, you can do two for one. and It's a little highbrow, a little lowbrow low and, together. And, and mm-hmm. this way, I really feel like if you're listening to a lecture or a, you know a talk about um, an academic subject, we're really learning something. It feels even better, like you're getting away with something by listening and playing a video game at the same time. Uh, Summer I know is a great time. I remember as a kid growing up in uh, Kansas, also known as the sweltering hell pit of the Midwest when it came to July and August, that video games were a great summer activity if it's hot. So if you are a gamer, uh, if you do crafts, things like that, this is another way to get different kinds of information into your ears. Um, Like this show, for example. You might be experienced with this since you're maybe listening Mm -hmm. to this right now. Again, that's the greatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot for a free month. Go try it out. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. All right. Well, I know that you are sad that I saved me to oh, follow God. up stories for you while you were on vacation. <laughs> well, let's can we keep this one quick? I mean, just for our insanity. This one's sake. quick. Um, this one's quick. So, just to uh, just to update yeah. kind of where we are, I guess, with um with Juno Diaz. This news did come out last week. I um I like Josh, so I didn't make him talk about this. <laughs> Whereas you <laughs> despise me. Thanks. Oh, that. yeah, Jeff. Uh-huh. You know, everyone listening to this show can tell uh, it's just a put on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Give it, anyway, give it to me. Give it to me. So, um, Juno Diaz teaches at um, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they conducted an investigation after the Me Too allegations came out against him, and they have cleared him to continue teaching creative writing this coming academic year. Um, their inquiry looked into his actions toward female students and staff, and that yielded 
yielded no information that led them to conclude they should restrict his him at, from being a faculty member. The statement says, to date, MIT has not found or received information that would lead us to take any action to restrict Prof. Diaz in his role as an MIT faculty member, and we expect him to teach next academic year as scheduled. Um, there are you know, the responses to this are about what you would expect, that this is probably a, um, the speculation that I've seen is like, this is what happens when you have lawyers telling you no one in, no one in our school has complained about him. So this school cannot fire him without some kind of wrongful termination lawsuit risk. Um, I think this is also what happens when you don't have a clause in contracts related to like moral turpitude, Mm -hmm. essentially. Um, because if you have reports that one of the men on your staff is out forcibly kissing women and among other accusations that raises it should raise concerns to a reasonable person that he if he's doing this out in the world he might do this with the students at your school um it seems to me that like we don't know what's in the minds of these people at MIT they very well might be concerned about this but they don't seem to have a a ground where they could safely do something about it um so I guess if you're a young woman enrolled at MIT, you might want to consider who you take creative writing courses from. Um, But Juno Diaz will remain on faculty there, I guess, unless he does something. Like he stepped down as the Pulitzer Prize chairman in response to what was going on. He might remove himself um, from the situation. But so far, he hasn't commented on it. His agent said that she was pleased with the outcome. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to make with the two data points we have on this side of um, the Boston Review and MIT coming to. It sounds like similar decisions. Um, you know, doing internal investigation, basically saying we don't see anything in our house related to this guy, right. um, and apparently deciding or having to decide for legal reasons mm-hmm. that there's not enough that warrants, you know, firing with cause or something else of that of that relationship. So, you know, I'm not sure what to make of it. I'm not surprised. I guess if I were, I think I said when this first broke that I would be surprised if he lost his gig at MIT. This doesn't say if he's tenured. I would guess that he is or tenure track or however this is works. Um, and the the constraints around getting rid of a tenured faculty member are stringent. And based on what we'd, saw, what we'd seen, that it was external to the... It was external to the university. You know, there's no criminal charges. Um, I just didn't see a way that MIT would let him go. Um, now, this doesn't say that if we. This doesn't say we would like to have let him go. go. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a little bit different than Boston Review. That regard, like Boston Review suggested that they had every, I don't know, ability to to, to remove him from his position there and decided not to. This is more. We were involved in the term of this. We did not find that would lead us to take any action to restrict. That's a lot different than we're keeping him on. That's more like, you know, I don't know. Right. Like, <laughs> we've, we've seen no reason to it's, arrest him, that kind of a situation. Yeah. The, the language is a little bit different. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it would be difficult in his position to teach there. Um, I would guess his other faculty members, you, you don't know what's going to happen um, with this. But there, I don't know what else to say about it, except yep. this is not a surprising um, outcome. And in fact, I would have been surprising, surprised if it went the other way. Yeah, I I would as well. Um, because it looks very much like we can't do anything because there have been no reports about things happening in our house. Yep, right. um, so 
um, interesting to see like if there's any sort of student response to this. Yeah, um, I don't know. Like MIT is an interesting place. They they have a they do have a creative writing program. Um, they do. It's a relatively well-regarded one, but MIT is not really. It doesn't have a, like a robust arts and humanities, as you know, MIT. Mm-hmm. So I'm. It'd be curious to see what. I don't know what the mood of the MIT campus there. I know if this was like somewhere more uh, uh, experienced with it, it's more of a liberal arts college that there would be. Uh, let's just say there would be loud discourse on campus about these sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen at MIT. Summertime too. Uh, True. So they, yeah. they dodged. I don't know if they dodged something or whatever. But um, there. I guess speaking of the Boston Review, I, I I don't know what to do with this except we're tra- we're going to talk about the Vita stats here for in a minute. And I was just mm-hmm. per- perusing. Um, you know, there's a nice chart in the article that um, one of our contributors wrote about Vita, uh, Dana Staves. Uh, Vita, as you know, is the count that the Women in Literary Arts does every year of the coverage of books in literary publications, both the people who are doing the reviewing, but also the the books, um, the gender identity of the people being reviewed as well. Um, the, the worst year over year in terms of uh, coverage, good old Boston Review, mm-hmm. down 9% uh, number mm-hmm. of women. So the t- tough year. Uh, for Boston Review, if if you care about these sorts yeah, of things, yeah. Well, that's the uh, worst change. Yes, yeah, worst, worst change, I should say. Yeah, yeah. the the uh, worst uh, total count is the New York Review of Books, which um, published 194 pieces by women, which made up 23 percent of theirs, and 639 pieces by men, uh, which was 77 percent. Basically, if you have of books in your uh, in your title, you do crappy on this because London Review of Books is uh, the second to last. They're they're the mm-hmm. they're the anti penultimate caboose of this particular sad train. Um <laughs> where they do my eyes are getting bad, but they twenty seven percent. Um hundred and ninety four pieces uh by or about women and then five hundred and twenty six pieces <sighs> by or about men. Well yep and and that London Review of Books, those numbers are better than they were yeah, last year. Yeah, better they, than they were last year. Yeah. They improved by 5%, but yeah, the folks over at the Boston Review have gone the hardest in the wrong direction. Yeah, only two of the surveyed publications are at gender parity. Um, Granta, 53.5%, and Poetry, right at, at 50%. Um, again, I... It's hard to know like how close you want to be, you know, leave it to your own recognizance, but people in the ballpark, Harper's, New York Times Book Review, New Republic, Paris Review, Tin House. Um, Tin House historically has done pretty well there at 49.7%. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, within that close, I think you can attribute that to variance a little bit. Um, New York Review of Books, like we said. Uh, gender non-binary, this is something that's you know, more and more uh, talked about. Um, and I, I don't remember from the very beginning of Vita, made this explicit or um, a top-line reportable. I thought it was interesting to see here. Um, 10 out of the 15 publications the main count included at least one piece by a non-binary individual. Uh, and in terms of percentages, mostly, I mean, mostly growth. Um, mm-hmm. here. Again, we're dealing with small sample sizes um, for non-binary and, contributors, but they're up across the board. 
Yeah. And those are cases where the writers have responded to the VITA survey and self-identified as non-binary. So the numbers might be different in either direction for overall representation of, mm-hmm. uh, of what's happening in these publications, but not everyone who writes for these publications is completing the surveys. And certainly folks from marginalized mm-hmm. groups have some disincentives very often to, um, to out themselves or to self-identify. Yeah. So I don't know if there's any takeaways here. Is there anything to say about this? It's, Like, the big top line is that, as they state in the Vita write-up, the majority, eight out of the 15 publications, failed to publish enough women writers to make up even 40% of their publications run in 2017. Um, I don't remember what that split looked like several years back when Vita first started, if it was, you know, like, was it 11 of the 15 publications didn't have even 40%? It seems that each year for the last couple of years, the story has been, there's improvement, but it's not leaps and bounds improvement in most cases. A couple years back, like one of the Literary magazines made a big jump. Tin House, I think. Uh, like that's tin, the first yeah, Vita. You can look House. at the chart. Yeah. Like you can see, there's a huge jump. Right. Um, you could see like who saw themselves get called mm-hmm. out in that first Vita count, and then really did make some changes to their editorial process. Um, but it's mostly little changes, um, mostly you know in the right direction, um, or in a you know a positive direction towards parity, but still not super, still not super awesome. Um, it is nice to see there's another, there are tons of charts on the Vita site and, um, Dana who did the write up at book riot has pulled a few of them that look at the larger literary landscape. So not just these major publications. So if you are a writer who's working to get pieces published in, um, other literary magazines, like you're not just shooting for the New York times book review, but maybe you're thinking about the Colorado review or N plus one or some of yeah. those, you can get a, you can, you know, take a glance at how those publications are doing and see, um, maybe who is going to be the friendliest or whose values are more in line with the kind of work that you're doing mm-hmm. or who you are. Um, so I think it's interesting as a resource in that way. Um, maybe we're also tired from all of the other things that are going on as well. Yeah. That like, this is just it not it's just not near the biggest piece of news. Yeah. It used to be the the Vita count coming out was a huge piece of news in the world of books and reading and a thing that we talked about for a couple of weeks afterwards. Yeah. And that it was really used to hold editors' feet to the fire. Um, and it, I think it should still be if you're looking at this and you're an editor of a magazine who went 9% down in your parody mm-hmm. last year, you should feel some conviction yeah. about um, being held accountable for that. But there is so much, there's just so much going on that I think the the gender parody stuff is taking a backseat to like, let's work out some of the Me Too problems. Yeah. Not, that they're not, bo- not that they're not both important and we can hold both of these in our heads as things that we care about at the same time, but the like urgency of Vita seems to me to have slowed down a bit. Yeah, like so, some other bricks have been put on the hierarchy of needs above it somehow in the yeah, intervening right. years. Um, not that it's not, it's, I don't think it's any more or less important than it was, just there's other things going on. I will say this, just looking, and again, I haven't run this through any statistical processes or anything like this, but there are publications, I think it's re- it's pretty clear that Vita offer, you know, provided a wake-up call for them. I'm just mm-hmm. looking at the graphs, New Republic, uh, Tin House, uh, the Paris Review, um, those especially, 
you can see that there's dramatic changes in their graphs. And I think with a lot of these kinds of situations, the first wave of people with ears to listen will change their behavior and say, oh, I, you know, they, they were doing it wrong, but they want to do better and they'll change. But then once you get past that wave, what do you do about the New York Review of Books of the World, which is just flatlined? You know, the other ones mm-hmm. that are just flatlined, um, that are not even close to parody. Um, you know, the Three Penny Review just, it's, it's bad. Uh, mm-hmm. New York Times Book yeah, Review has gotten better, but it's kind of evened out. I mean, again, I think each of us decides where we think the threshold is for, like, not being upset with seeing what the, the, the breakdown is like. But I, I think I mentioned this last year. It's like, it feels to me like Vita has done, th- th- these reporting has done the first wave of work about what these numbers can do. And now it's keeping track. And I think there's a value to that. Um, but I wonder if it's, and maybe this is where I am politically too, is like the people who aren't going to change, don't worry about changing them. They'll like, yeah. go out and do, like maybe Vita should look at say us or Bustle or Litha. Like what are the people that are like, mixing it up in a different way are these new entrants that aren't as calcified in their ways like how are we doing again i don't really want to call them the thunder on us but i think in terms of gender we perform fairly well on this there's some other things that maybe we wouldn't i don't know but like i'm just wondering like i I, maybe it's just how i'm feeling like okay screw the new york review of books i'm just not gonna pay attention to them like okay they're gonna be bad like i just can't bang my head against that wall i don't feel like yeah i think that they did serve that purpose in like here's what's going on. And if you were an editor who was going to feel your feet being held to the fire and care, now you've had enough years of Vita to have cared and to have started making changes that are measurable and and visible. And that's, I think that's useful for those of us who like, we get to decide which sites Mm -hmm. and magazines we link to and which things we use as resources to point other readers to and which we don't give airspace to or a platform to. And so from for the kind of work that you and I do, I think this is useful to see every year because you can see who hasn't changed, like basically who decided they don't care right. um, and is just cruising along, not caring. Um, that's useful information to have when you're, I guess, a gatekeeper of s- some kinds of information um, for where readers can go. So like, we'll send you to the Missouri review, which mm-hmm. seems to be doing a great job. Maybe I'm not going to give a link to N plus one, which just seems to not care at all. Um, and that, you know, is I think a reader service in its own right. But I, yeah, I agree there. I think there might be other, other places to put this attention. Um, you know, in terms of publication, like these publications don't just that Vita looks at don't just have to be sort of establishment publications, mm-hmm. which which these ones are. It would be really difficult to count the stuff on a website. It's already really difficult yeah. for them to count no, the things true. that they count. But I do think that focusing just on the kind of publications they focus on ignores what the bigger pic what the really bigger picture of literary publication landscape looks like, which is largely happening online. Yeah. I mean, just for example, like they do all these larger literary landscape pieces, which I think is really interesting. Also get your S together, believer in Harvard review and N plus one. But like, what about the reviews that appear in publishers weekly? Again, Mm -hmm. that is a, a, those are giant industry rags, right? Like, in a way, those are more, again, more more or less important is tough, but those are those are influential in a different way than these 
I guess, consumer facing, reader facing kinds of, you know, does the, does the waterfall of despair, of disparity start earlier in the publication cycle? Mm-hmm. Um, cause really these review, a lot of these are reviews or profiles. These are at the end of the publication cycle. Weirdly, like this is when the book is out, generally speaking. Um, right. maybe one thing that would be interesting to see, where does this start? Is it at the, you know, because Publishers Weekly is usually a, a few months out before publication. And, you know, a lot of these editors, uh, this one included, looks at the Publishers Weekly to see what's coming out and are triaging those things and what kind of review. Like, I just wonder if there, a, a shift in focus or a broadening or whatever mm-hmm. would give us some new information. I just don't feel like we're getting any new information here. Not to yeah. say that, that keeping track of this isn't good. Just like, I wonder what additional or, you know, context for these numbers could that could we provide now? Let's say, for example, that we could count um, the gender breakdown, uh, gender identity of all big five publications. And mm-hmm. what if it were basically the the average of all these things put together? So then, what would we think differently about these publications? Like, well, okay, they're reviewing forty two percent women, but only thirty nine percent of the books coming out are by. Do you see what I'm getting? I just, I just wonder mm-hmm. if, if you could address the other points. Yeah, in the, the, the par- other yeah. parts of the pipeline. I feel like we have a good sense of the water coming out of the tube here, but I don't have a sense of the lake that it's coming from. Still, I think that's something we talked about mm-hmm. early. We, we've continued to talk about. It. It's like people still don't know. Um, though I think we could guess probably fairly, if not precisely, then accurately. Uh, Jeff thinks cares about precise versus accurate. <laughs> that there is disparity all along the pipeline. Does it get as exaggerated to get any points? Like, is it is it exaggerating at the, um, the the submission to agent point? Is it like sort of at the at, at the source of the river? I do, I think all of that stuff is really interesting. Again, I don't know how they would do this necessarily. They need a whole lot of buy-in. But I think this story is one we need to keep track of, but I think this story is is fairly stagnant. Yeah, um, I agree. And it's it's tough. It's 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 dispiriting, but I, I just think that's the, the truth of the matter is like some of these these are some of these rocks aren't gonna break, um, at least with this particular hammer. So anyway. All right, where should we go from here? You you take you take Let's us somewhere. Let's see. Let's talk about Laura Ingalls Wilder. Boy, I was not expecting this one. Um, well, yeah. I don't care about the go. Give me the ten. It's, okay. The story. Then there's the story about the story. I guess is kind of how. This so goes. the ALA, the American Library Association, had their big annual conference last week, and one of the things that occurred maybe it was earlier this week. I don't even know where I am yeah. in time anymore. Every day is a million years in this new yeah, cycle. Um, but the ALA voted to remove the name of Laura Ingalls Wilder from a major children's book award over concerns about how the author portrayed African-Americans and Native Americans. Um, They made the unanimous decision to change the name last Saturday at a meeting at the ALA conference in New Orleans. The name of the prize was changed from the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal to the Children's Literature Legacy Award in order to um, make the award more consistent with the ALA's values. They said that Wilder includes expressions of stereotypical attitudes inconsistent with their core values. Um, This makes sense to me. This is also not the first time that we've seen an organization make this kind of change. Like over the last several years, there's been a lot of writing about what racism looks like in the Little House on the Prairie books. Um, Folks 
our age who grew up reading these are looking back at them to give to their kids now and having some hesitation about, do I share these books that I loved with my children? Like I had the box set. Mm -hmm. If I had kids, I think I would feel very conflicted about, do I read these books to my kids and address the racism that's in it? Or do I not read them to my kids? What, What do you do there? But Laura Ingalls Wilder's legacy is changing because we're turning a more critical eye to the way that uh, people who are not white are represented in older classic works by white people. Like, and I don't think that this is anywhere near the end of, mm-hmm. of what we're going to see. But it's not dissimilar to... Um, the Lovecraft Award. The Lovecraft yeah. Award. Yeah, I was searching for the name. But to, uh, right, to the Lovecraft Award being changed into something a little broader um, to represent sci-fi fantasy and to get away from the attitudes that Lovecraft represents to people. Um, I think, I mean, this is a great call. I think Mm -hmm. the ALA saying we want to honor these great children's books and we want to do this in a way that's consistent with our organization's values. And one of the parts of doing that is not having an author's name on the award Mm -hmm. that that author is known for harmful representations of people and and harmful attitudes. Um, But this became such a thing. I don't know how much of it. Yeah. You were on vacation, so I don't know if you were, you know, still looking at the Twitter, mm-hmm. but this it really became a thing this week. <laughs> well, the, yeah, there's the story, then there's the, the reaction to the story, and the reaction mm-hmm. to the story, I think, for our purpose, like what we're interested in, that's more interesting, relevant, discussion-worthy, because I think we're on the same page. Like, this makes sense, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think the, they this Guardian piece maybe even soft pedals a little bit, like Wilder apologized for her thoughtlessness, I think it's beyond thoughtlessness. Like she herself amended mm-hmm. a line in Little House on the Prairie that said Kansas had, quote, no people, only Indians originally. Right. That is pretty rough. I don't think, I mean, that's that's not thoughtlessness. That's a certain kind of racial imagination that is beyond thoughtlessness. Then um, she later changed it to no settlers, only Indians. And I think that's indicative of the kind of representation um, of Native mm-hmm. people, especially the Osage tribe, which has long condemned um, and protested their representation or lack of representation or the truth of what happens in those books. Um, and again, like it's kind of like the Grammys, the Oscars, the Tonys, they're not named after any particular person. They just are the award. That, that's not a, mm-hmm. a big deal. So I don't think there's, any, there's anything there. I think the vociferousness of, peop- of, of a certain segment's reaction to Wilder's name being taken off of the ward is super telling. And mm-hmm. it is, you know, kind of like there's that baseline of in the Vita count. I think this also is representative of a kind of baseline, a kind of intransigence, a kind of like the hard rock bottom of not willing to reinterrogate, reimagine, or reconsider our relationship with authors and books that we, especially books we loved as kids, and especially books we think of as being classics yeah are very hard for people to sort of shift their thinking about um yeah i think there's like a sort of a knee jerk that some people had to i loved these books and i'm not racist but you're saying she's racist so what are you saying about me right yeah um And it is tough to, like, I mean, what do you know when you're an eight? Like, I was an eight-year-old girl in suburban Kansas. Well, I was an eight-year-old girl, but I was an eight-year-old, but yeah. Yeah, I was an eight-year-old white girl Um. in suburban Kansas reading these. Um, And I did love these books. These, I have really fond memories of what those, what these reading experiences were like in my childhood. Um, So I know that, 
like I get it from experience how people feel connected to the legacy of these books and to what it meant in their in their young mm-hmm. reading lives. But I, th- I think you're exactly right. It points to, I don't want to interrogate this thing because I had a connection to it. Um, I also saw like, well, taking her name off erases her literary legacy um, or erases, like you're, you're erasing Laura Ingalls Wilder from history for thought crime, which like, it's not thought crime if you put it on the page mm-hmm. that you think Indians aren't people. Right. Like that's that's spoken. Um, you have used your words, uh, and said a thing then. And like, I think it's also not dissimilar to what we've talked about with that. It's maybe time to take to kill a mockingbird Mm. off of school syllabi. Um, that there are plenty other books that you can teach that interrogate the history of race relations in the South. Um, maybe even some of them also use the N word and that's still a difficult word Mm -hmm. to explore, but Harper Lee might not be the one. Um, it, it might be time for Laura Ingalls Wilder's legacy to be reconsidered um, or for her name to be taken off the list of authors mm-hmm. who shape the ways that young people learn to read and learn to think about this country um, because the ideas that she puts forth are harmful. Yeah. And, you know, taking things in and out of the canon is always met with a certain amount of um, resistance for reasons I think are understandable because people feel like it is like this is how I was growing up, that the canon wasn't something that was debated, it just was. And it feels like it's rock hard and that chipping it off or cracking it off is a real act of violence somehow when really it's much more contested and fluid and always has been and always will be. I think what's interesting here is that there's a particular political moment that rises outside of academic discourse where someone is being rethought in public and there is a there's a bright line, and this is a bright line of thinking like taking someone's name off an award. Now, thought crime. No one's saying burn the books. No one is saying never read these again. No one's saying that Wilder should have been in jail. They're just saying maybe, just maybe, if we're going to give this award for outstanding achievement, it shouldn't be to someone that has you know this other thing going on in their work. This you know this kind mm-hmm. of representation. If we're going to hold this person up as an example. Maybe it should be a little less adulterated than what we're finding with Wilder here. So give me a break with all that stuff. But I think this is, you know, of its own why it is its own sort of version of white grievance politics that we've seen in large, you know, sort of top level Mm -hmm. American politics of late. I don't think it's dissimilar. I don't think it's that much different than people getting bent out of shape about taking Robert E. Lee statues down, statues down in Times Square. I think it's a very similar kind of reaction of like not being willing, Mm -hmm. not being able to find it very personally offensive, um, to, to, to say, you know, we're not going to hold these people up as examples anymore because you know what, they kind of sucked or really sucked or something they did sucked. And like, we're not saying never mention Robert E. Lee again, but maybe there should be a freaking statue in the middle of the town. Like maybe the award that we give for kids books shouldn't sort of have be books that are like on, have a racist underpinning. Like that seems pretty mm-hmm. straightforward to me, but, but <laughs> yeah. for some people, like it's really hard because, well, you have to be perfect now. Like this, well, no, but crap happened and it did. And like the opposite of erasing is uh, lifting up and embracing and celebrating. Mm-hmm. So, if it's a choice between erasing and celebrating, I think that's a false binary and that people are using that rhetorically yes. in bad faith. This is something other than that, but that's interesting. And I think I need to be careful of this too, because in this way, I, I get a little fatigued. 
fatigue about, God, do I have to reconsider this thing? And I, I'm not like bent out of shape like I'm going to write a comment on someone's blog post saying, whoa, why rape? <laughs> rape? Like that's not, I'm not in danger of that. Let's just put, I'm just, not going to get yourself banned I, from not, the Facebook yeah. page. But, uh, but there is a part of me I have to guard against of like, oh God, another one. And it's like, do I really have to? It's like, well, you don't have to care about it, but realizing that this is a long time coming and there's been a lot of... Uh, oppression and repression of these points of views. And there's going to be a lot of them, just like kind of mm-hmm. like with me too, there's going to be a lot of these. Yep. Um, yeah. I think we're not anywhere near the end of this. Right. There's a lot of this stuff that we need to take a closer look at and reconsider. And I think you're correct that it's a false binary. Also, this is not erasure. Taking someone's name off of a literary award is no. not an, er- it, like her books are still going to be widely available everywhere. Anyone who wants to celebrate Laura Ingalls Wilder's literary legacy will be able to continue buying these books and reading them and giving to them, giving them to their children and whatever. Um, but I think from, like you're saying, from a big historical perspective, it's the right decision. It makes sense. It is akin, I think, to taking down the statues of um, of Robert E. Lee. Here in Richmond, we just found out last week that a local school that has been named after Jeb Stewart mm. for as long as it's existed, is the community has voted to rename it after Barack Obama. It's in a community that has 95% of the students are Black. Um, and I thought a lot when that came out about what must it be like to be a Black mm. kid going into a school named after someone who's known for doing terrible things to black people. Um, And related to this award, imagine being a Native American children's author who wins the Laura Mm. Ingalls Wilder Award. Like now your book is tainted by a medal with the name of a person who was known to have racist attitudes about your community. Um, So on a very human level, I think this is the right decision as well. Yeah. And please don't email me saying that Robert E. Lee and Lauren Ingle Wilder are not the same. I know they're not the same. Okay. I know they're not the same. Let me let me cut you off right there. Internet emailer. Um, also, these books are almost 100 years old. Like, the first one came out in 1932. Like, I, it's, you know, it, things change. This is completely beside the point, but I was just... She was born in 1867 and died in 1957. That is mm-hmm. a crazy thing to think. 90 of. years. She was 90 years yep. old, but she was born like two years after the Civil War ended and died three mm-hmm. years after Sputnik. Like that is quite right. a century to have experienced. Like that is a wild. <laughs> that is a really good 90 year that's a, spread. That is a serious 90 years. A lot changing. Like Civil War to Sputnik. Like it seems impossible. It seems like that should be. But 900. you're writing books about people traveling in wagons, and there is a person in a rocket ship. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> I don't think that there was any people in space by. I don't think Yuri, uh, Yuri Gagarin was in space, but there were at least yeah, satellites. Right. Um, right. By 1957, that is a wild. I don't know. That just blew me away. A little existential <laughs> vertigo about that particular uh, span of time. Okay, uh, I lost my podcast agenda. Oh, book club. Well, There's a book club. The book clubs all over the place. There are. You want to talk about those? Well, can, can we do a meta thing? Are we in a? Are we in a, yeah. a, a celebrity book club bubble? I, just, I think we are. Uh, Jimmy Fallon, of all people, is launching a book club. I mean, I don't know. He just seems like goofy, tousling Donald Trump's hair. I'm like not here for Jimmy Fallon at the particular moment because I'm not here for anyone sort of tangentially related to the, the dude in the White House. But anyway, uh, announced he's launching The Tonight Show's first ever book club, dubbed The Tonight Show Summer Reads. Summer okay. here, and I don't really have any books to read. I don't have a good summer book to read. The NBC late night host said following his opening monologue. But I want to be there. I want to be walking around the book, and everyone's got like, "Oh, you, yeah, me." So uh, weird. I, this is a weird story. Like, what is this? <laughs> I'll 
also, how does the Jimmy Fallon book club work? Is it just he – so people are voting. Yes. There's these five books, and then you can go on and vote for which one it will be. It is an interesting and diverse selection, mm-hmm. so I'm happy to see that. But, like, once they pick the book – what happens? Yeah. Does Jimmy read the book and then you read the book and maybe the author comes on? Like, how does one participate in the Jimmy Fallon book club? Also, why? Like, of all the places you could learn about books and decide to be in a book club, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's people who are excited to do this. But I do think that we are in a celebrity book club bubble. I just don't um, under, I don't get it. Like of all the things, like it would have been wild to see, like, again, I come from a completely different era of light night television. I haven't watched a late night television show since I was like up late at nights ever. But like, you know, in the Letterman days, I would watch Letterman. So weird. It would have been weird to think of like Leno so, or Carson or any of those guys like having yeah, a book club. Like there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just, it just feels like it's completely. It's, it's weird. Situation. Like what was the pitch meeting like where this happened? And how do these books um, get in front of him? Like this is the thing we have about all these celebrity book clubs. Right. Like, what is that? Speaking of funnels and like, pipelines, like where does that funnel start? It's this seems to me like um, a couple of years ago. One of the things that that we heard about a lot, at least within publishing and like in sales meetings, was publishers spending time and effort to get books to influencers. Yeah. You know that like they were hoping that somebody with a billion Instagram followers would post a picture of the book. And in some cases they were paying for that placement, but a lot of it was just like publicists hustling to send copies out to millennials with Instagram accounts and lots of followers, hoping that a picture of like a person wearing tall socks, reading this book and drinking a latte was going to be the thing that moved copies. And now it does seem to be like the thing you're hoping for is to get Reese Witherspoon to pick your title, like as the thing that's going to move the needle, I guess, on book sales. So like maybe Jimmy Fallon has book publicist friends who are like, you know what you should do is have a book club and somehow these all got in front of him but i do that's the most interesting Uh thing to me about this is how did he get to these five finalists could these be paid could this be a paid thing do you think i mean is it possible that this is like um are these all by the same publisher i have no idea like is there any chance of any of this i just don't know i didn't even i i didn't even get suspicious enough to see if they were always be suspicious ABS. You know I usually am. Just like Glenn Jeff, Gary, Glenn was, Ross. ABS. Always accident. be suspicious. I'm. I usually have extra side eye That's for true. things. This. I was like, I was accidentally giving this a generous reading, but I'm going to Google it yeah. now to see if the, if they're all from the same publisher. Well, you're the one that dropped the scales um, in my eyes writ large when you told me that like the books on the paperback favorites table at Barnes and Noble are all paid. <laughs> After that, I'm like, it's all paid. It's all. It's all paid. <laughs> Everything's paid. Yeah. If I be, I would not be surprised. Famously, Oprah's if, wasn't. So I mean, right. I put that out there because a lot of talk was about like it would be worth paying her a half a million dollars yeah. back well, in the and, day um, to do and it. And I don't think Reese Witherspoon's is paid either. But that's become a big enough deal that it's a subplot on this season of Younger. Oh, it is like a paid Reese mm-hmm. Witherspoon thing. Like wow. not not paid, but like a thing that I don't yeah. think this is a spoiler. But like a thing that's happening on this season of Younger is that the women at Millennial Press are trying to get a development deal with, with Reese uh, Witherspoon's production company of like, we'll give you books and you could put them in the Reese Witherspoon book club. And then if you like them, you have first pass on turning them into movies. Mm. But like Reese Witherspoon's book club is a well enough known cultural phenomenon that a TV show about publishing is addressing it. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. Like maybe Fallon really wants, like it could be like, like Seth Meyers is clearly as a book person and, you know, he has authors on all 
all the time. It could be that mm-hmm. Fallon really does want to read more books and he thinks it's fun and it's a platform. Great. So. Um, it's just, it seems, it just seems super strange. Here, here's the, which celebrity having a book club will be the Fonz jumping a shark moment on happy day from, <laughs> from whence the jumping the shark, uh, uh, phrase comes from any, any right. thoughts about if X person has a book club that oh. they publicly talk about that, then it will be over. <laughs> Maybe like one of the real housewives of something. Yeah. I think Dennis Rodman is a pretty good pick. <laughs> I was thinking like Martha Stewart, Flava Flav. Flava Flav. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Cause like, you know, Oprah's got a book club and there's Reese Witherspoon and like, didn't for, didn't, was Mindy Kaling going to have a book club or she's just a book mm, nerd? I can't really remember. She's about just that. a book nerd. But we, I think. We've got the, um, um we've, Andrew Luck has say, a book club. Well, and yeah, there's a couple of sports figures have book clubs or like read alongs and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's just super, I think it's super interesting. Yeah, you know, I think that this is also perhaps publishers chasing like the Oprah bump is not nearly what it used to be. Um, it's not nearly what it was when Oprah had her show. And then there was the daily show bump Mm. was a real thing that for a while, if Jon Stewart had an author on and it was a great segment, the, like you didn't just always get a bump, but many authors got a very measurable bump in sales from being on the daily show. Um, and there was, I think a few titles had the Colbert bump yeah. as well, but it wasn't ever consistent. I don't, I haven't seen anything about Seth Meyers, um, mm. what that does for an author's book sales, but he has consistently had authors on mm-hmm. for as long as he's been hosting that show. I think he is like a quote, like a real reader. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to have authors on and he doesn't just have like top like line. A fan. Like he's a fan. That's yeah. He's was. a fan. Real exactly. readers. Yeah, you know, that's a, tricky. But yeah. He's, yeah, he's like a genuine, he's a genuine reader yeah. a genuine, you know, book nerd. Um, I wonder, like, if this is paid, and I'm going to find out if these are all from the same publisher, um, It's, I think it would probably be an attempt to chase after that. Let's put one title in front of mm-hmm. the audience of a late night show and see what we can do for it with sales. If it is just a, like, Jimmy Fallon wants to read more books, like, uh, Jimmy Fallon knows people. He could get books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, though, I guess, I mean, they do these shows every day. Like, uh, just mixing it up might be interesting for them. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's all the same publisher because IQ, um, that came out a couple of years ago. I think that's Hachette. That's Hachette. And I don't think Children of Blood of Bone is um, off the top of my head. I don't think that's a, um, I'm Googling. a Little Brown for Young Readers title, um, which would be Hachette as well. Um, and IQ came out a couple years ago, so that's also an interesting. Mm-hmm. But there's new ones in that series yeah, that's true. continuing yeah. to come out. Well, and in in Fallon even said that he described IQ as a good investment type of book, as is confirmed to have sequels, which is the kind of mm-hmm. thing you would say if it were paid, right? <laughs> like, yeah. um, that, you know, boy, really... maybe it's. I mean, the, that that they're not all, and you're correct, they're not all from the same publisher. Mm-hmm. Children of Blood and Bone is a Henry Holt title, Holt, and that's yes, a Macmillan Holt, imprint. Yeah. Um, it could have been though, like, hey, the Fallon show is going to do yeah. book placements. Who wants in? And five different publishers pay. <laughs> but would I mean? Would it be? Could a publisher pay enough for this to be worth it for Fallon? I mean, like, this is a, no, a network television show. I don't know what the scale of the buy would have to be for to make something like this worth it. If here's my call for Little Birdies. Yeah. If you work, if you work for a publisher that has one of these five books, the finalists are The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin, Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi, Providence by Carolyn, Caroline Kepnes, IQ by Joe Ide, and The Good Son by Yu Jung. Oh, there's a, um, there's a caption over it. Yo, Yu yeah, Jung Jung, yeah. I believe. Um, 
And you know how these books ended up on Jimmy Fallon's desk. We would love to know, and we won't tell anyone. Or any or any related kind of book club yes. situation, you know. That podcast at bookriot.com. Book we will keep you anonymous. You don't even have to say who you are, but if you want to say who you are so that we will believe you. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, we have a good track record of keeping Little Birdie uh, well-plumed. Uh, we do. Our birdies are all still secrets. Yeah. Tell us about the Hero of the Week, and let's get out of here. All right, so our hero of the week. This one's a good one this week. A teenage girl named Julia Foos in Cleveland has collected and donated 25,000 books to children in need across the the greater Cleveland area in the last couple of years. Um, She is a true bookworm who was spurred into action at just 14 years old. She read an article about the lack of access that many children in Cleveland have to books. The city has one of the lowest literacy rates in the country and studied showed that 61% of low-income children there don't have any books in their homes. Julia was really upset about it, and she said that she thought she should do something because she had the ability to do something. Her original goal was to collect just 250 books, but she surpassed that so fast that she just kept going. Um, So the new and gently used books that she collects are donated by schools, family, and businesses that she personally reaches out to. And then those books are distributed to kids in lower income homes. Um, She has a Facebook page called Books Offer Opportunities for Kids. If you would like to uh, get in on supporting that. Good job, Julia. 25,000 books. The kids. The kids might be all right, I Jeff. hope so. They might. Boy, I hope so. Um, that's our show. Thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this week, this week's show. Go to greatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot to get your free month of using The Great Courses Plus. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com about anything we uh, talked about today, except if it is about how Laura Ingalls Wilder and Robert E. Lee are basically the same. That I will not, that is, I'm going to set up a filter keyword. We already know. That mentioned Robert E. Lee and Wilder are now filtered in the spam. We'll go right to spam. Um, but <laughs> if you have, um, uh, if you have bird knowledge about book club, celebrity book club shenanigans, we would like to hear them. Thanks so much. And we will talk to you. We will have a show next week. So we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Mm